This episode of 11 Point Collar is brought to you by Muppet Haunted Hotel and weirdos like you. It's 11 Point Collar, hosted by J.D. Frog Scout Hansel. Howdy gang, welcome back to a far more normal episode of 11 Point Collar, episode 74 to be exact. I'm your host, J.D. Hansel, and it's good to be back after the non-Muppet shows to something a bit more Muppety. That being said, thank you to those who supported my little experiment over the past few weeks, and for those of you who want me to continue J.D. Hansel Radio, I want to continue that as well. I'm just looking for the appropriate platform for it, but trying to fit it all into 11PC just didn't seem like the way to go. So I'll just have to file that under my aborted projects from Muppet Hub, where it will sit right next to my attempt to analyze whether Moki or Red was better suited to be Gobo's girlfriend, and my effort to steal MuppetHauntedHotel.com from Disney. I mean, seriously, if they're not going to use that domain name for production, I might as well use it for one of mine, so they should really just stop holding on- Okay, I digress. I will find some other way outside Muppet Hub to continue being a radio host and doing JD Hansel Radio, because it's really fun for JD to be a DJ, but for now. I want to get back to Muppet and Puppet-related things. So, while I have to keep this show reasonably quick, I've got a few things planned. First, I'm going to talk a little bit about my trip to a right-handing and assisting workshop I attended in New York City, which was offered by Brooklyn Puppet Conspiracy and was taught by David Fino and Paul McGinnis. After that, I'm doing a couple of quick DVD and or Blu-ray reviews. It should be a fun show, but before anything else, I have to remind you to give us a like if you like the show on Facebook at MuppetHub.com Facebook. And be sure to follow me on Twitter and Tumblr and other places at JD11PC, JD11PC, to keep up with everything we're doing with the podcast and more. The main website for not the... I mean, sorry... 11 Point Collar is a production of MuppetHub.com, where the Muppetational comes together. If you've got any questions or comments on anything in Muppet Hub, or if you just want to say hi, please shoot me an email at notme, N-O-T-M-E, at MuppetHub.com. Brian Snyder, a good friend of the show, just sent in a couple emails recently, and he suggested that 11PC does some commentary, sort of like uh, vlogs that I've seen online, on the new episodes of The Muppets Period after they come out, and I really like this idea. I'd certainly try to bring on a co-host to join me for those shows, whether it's one of the other guys from different Muppet fan sites, or it's a listener of 11 Point Collar. Either way, this is a great suggestion, and I ask that you listeners send in more suggestions of your own. Now, let's get things started with a bit of music, and since the puppetry workshop was right near all these big Broadway theaters, I think I know just what song to play to set the mood. One, two, three, and... Then, Mr. Benson, you know what? This sounds cool. For rats, huh? <laughs> Takes three of us to play the drums. Clifford, you start. They say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. They say there's always magic in the Fine on Broadway. Broadway. 
Let's talk about the Live Hands and Assisting Workshop with Paul McGinnis and David Fino. I should preface this by kind of explaining how I ended up going to this workshop. After Beyond the Sock, and I'm sure you've heard a lot about my experience at the 2014 Beyond the Sock workshop. You can go back and listen to those podcast episodes on MuppetHub.com. I was wondering how I could learn how to do right-handing, because... I got a pretty good sense after BTS of how to do normal Hanson puppetry. But assisting is a whole different thing, and we didn't really have time in the less than a week that we were at Beyond the Sock to get into that stuff. So, of course, I was trying to figure out how I would learn this, and there's just no good place to do it that's really very well advertised and very prominent. People aren't talking about it to the same extent that they talk about, say, Beyond the Sock. So I just didn't know where to go. So... I did what anyone would do and asked the star of a classic Disney movie. Yes, I asked Peter Linz for his recommendation if he knew of any way to learn right-handing. And he said that he thought his friends at Brooklyn Puppet Conspiracy, David Fino and Paul McGinnis, had a workshop in that. So I looked it up, 
And sure enough, yes, they did have a workshop. At that time, I wasn't able to go because the time when I looked that up, there was a workshop that was just that very night. Uh, and I wasn't going to be able to make it. That would require a bit more planning. But I kept it in mind. So later I got an email from Brooklyn Puppet Conspiracy after I asked if I could be on their mailing list. And sure enough, there was another class coming up. And I didn't think I was going to be able to make it. But then plans changed. And lo and behold, I was able to make a date and take a trip all the way to New York City, right near Times Square, to finally get to learn this important skill in the world of puppetry. So the drive was rather long because I was going from Bel Air, Maryland in Harford County all the way up to New York City, which that takes a while. It didn't take us all that long to get to the city, but the tricky thing was once we were going into the city, then immediately it got so congested and there was so much traffic. But here's the thing. We were thinking we'd have plenty of time to get there and we'd find a nice cheap parking garage right near the workshop. So we were not concerned about dealing with any rush, largely because it was after rush hour and it was just a Thursday. So we I should by we, I mean, my father and I, we both went into the city uh, so that he could visit some people. And we were unpleasantly surprised by how congested it was and how impossible it was to get around. We ended up on a street from which we couldn't legally turn left or right to get off at any time, so we just had to keep going straight in the same direction, getting further and further from the workshop. It made things very difficult, and it was actually quite scary. But we eventually just had to give up on getting close to the place and just park the car somewhere and then run for it. So that was some of the most difficult running in my life, especially because it was still hot even though it was the evening and I was wearing a fleece for some reason. And yet, somehow, in spite of all the chaos, I only got there about a minute late. Uh, and one of the instructors wasn't there yet, so it all worked out okay. The problem was, in all the hurry, I'd forgotten my water bottle. And I was super thirsty and extremely sweaty right from the beginning of the workshop now, after all the running. So, yeah, it only got tougher and tougher to perform from there. But once I got in there, it was good. I got to meet some people as everyone was introducing themselves. Oddly, I didn't know anyone from the 2014 Beyond the Sock workshop, but someone else there had gone to the 2015 workshop and had sort of a similar experience to mine in that we had such a hard time finding a place that did this. And I, I must thank Peter Linz for the, uh, the referral. That, that really helped me out, I think. And what really surprised me was it was a small class size. I, I don't know, I'd say maybe 10 people were in there total, probably including the instructors. And only one of the people in there was a woman. And I find that somehow strange. Like, at Beyond the Sock, and I know these aren't exactly the same kinds of workshops, uh, but I guess that's the interesting thing to me, since BTS was also about building, and this was just about performing, and it was just a one-night thing from about 7pm to 10, I think. It's a pretty different beast, and I'm wondering if... Maybe there, the reason why there were less women at this workshop than there were at Beyond the Sock was because of the lack of actually getting to build the puppets. I don't know what it is. I, I would really love to see a study on this. I want to hear the research behind. Actually, I want a full study on whether men or women are more likely to go into puppetry and whether they're more likely to prefer the building or the performing, or whether they prefer puppetry to voice acting or acting on a stage or acting for TV and film. 
Okay, Muppet Wiki, Pew Research Center, get together and get on this. I know you can do this. Anyway, we started off the workshop doing some little stretches and exercises and things so that we were totally exhausted from the beginning. No, really, of course, it was to get us all able to move. And uh, Paul led that. Very nice guy, by the way. And so he led us in running in place and doing all these different stretches to get relaxed and then really stressed from... I don't know, uh, apparently a bear was chasing us or something weird like that, but uh, Paul kept it very entertaining, uh, so we got through the very painful exercises without focusing on the pain so much and uh, just having a good time. And then finally we got to, uh, well, we got to play with the puppets. So we were in this small room where they had a mirror set up and a few monitors and a camera. So we could all have our puppets look into the camera and look down at the monitors that were on chairs on the, well, close to the ground. And that way, we really got the full puppetry experience of having the mirror if we need it, but just getting to uh, practice more with monitors, which I, I always need more practice with monitors. But in spite of the fact that I'm actually going to tell you some of the things I learned in the workshop, just, just a few, really there's nothing that compares to actually getting your hands in the puppet. That's what makes all the difference in the world I've found. Right from the get-go, well, maybe not right from the get-go, but very early on in the class, we were taking these big live-hand puppets, and one of us was doing the performing of the head and the left hand, and the other was doing the right hand. At least I think that's how it went. That's generally how it goes. Or maybe one of us... I, I don't remember. I think I was doing the head, and I may or may not have been doing one of the other hands at first, and... Paul just played a song from his vast music library, and we never knew what was going to play, but what we had to do was dance along to the song, preferably lip-sync to it, which wasn't too difficult for me to do. I've, I've mostly got lip-sync down. Then we would try to give the right-hander something to do. That's why I think I must have been doing the left hand, because I think I was doing some motions, and the right-hander would have to do the same dance motions, or at least motions that accompany those. That's actually one of the most interesting things I learned at this workshop. You don't always have to do the same movement as the other performer, by no means. A lot of times when you're assisting your right-handing, what you want to do is what they call sympathetic movement. So the idea is that you just follow the lead puppeteer with movements that correspond in some way. So you may not be doing something that's exactly symmetrical, but if one hand is pointing, then you would probably want to not have the other hand waving because those generally don't go together very well. You might want to have it say, uh, gosh, what would you do if it was pointing? That's a bad example. I'll think of a better example later. But the point is, sympathetic movement was one of the most interesting concepts that I learned there that I think is very important. Another thing that I thought was really interesting is that we very quickly learned about three different types of live hands. And I didn't really know this. I never thought about this before. But when you watch the Muppets, you'll notice it's always going to be more of a sleeve kind of puppet, like Ernie. Or it's going to be a bag bottom, like Cookie Monster. Or it's going to be... You know what? I'm not going to tell you the third one. For the third one, you have to actually go to the workshop. Some fun Muppet trivia that I found out is that it's always best to wear black when puppeteering. Because that way, if your reflection shows up someplace, like in a, in a window or something, it's not going to be very noticeable. And if you wear bright colors, that will reflect off of something, pretty much inevitably. So John Stone 
when he was directing on Sesame Street, would actually penalize people in some way, I don't know exactly how, uh, for not wearing black. It really, really bothered him because, you know, perfectionist John Stone. Another neat thing, props for rod puppets are just about always foam, meaning that even when Animal is playing the drums, it always has to be foam drumsticks. He couldn't do it with actual wooden ones. I thought that was neat. Anyway, I think the key thing is that we were all alternating, and sometimes we'd take a break, other times we'd get up there, we'd be doing the head and the left hand, other times it would be just the head, sometimes we'd get to try both hands, so we'd all get to try different things, and I'll say this again, there really is nothing that compares to just getting your hands on the puppet and playing with it and seeing what you can do with it. We even got to the point when we were trying to have one of the live hand puppets holding a book and turning the page. Think about that. I can't even do that just with my own normal body. There is no good way for me to be holding a big, big book like the one we had, like a coffee table book with both hands and turn a page. That would require a third hand. So for us, it required all four hands being in use so that <laughs> I actually, I don't even remember how we did this. It was very hard to do. And we even did some other tricky things like uh, reaching down out of frame and picking up a glass, which with a live hand puppet may not be very hard to do. But the thing about this workshop is we also learned how to use hand rod puppets in such a way that the assist could be helpful. So you would have the main puppeteer doing the head and the left hand, and then the assist comes in doing the right hand, which will often pick up a glass out of frame. That's the exercise that I tried, and boy, was that hard. I had a really hard time with that. Or they might be writing on a pad of paper. There are a lot of neat little tricks with using the arm rods that I thought were really quite clever. And it largely has to do with the fact that when the lead puppeteer looks over at whatever the right hand is supposed to be doing, that's the cue for the right hand to start doing it. So say the right hand is scrolling on an iPad, the head will turn over towards the iPad, and at that moment, the scrolling has to start. So the assist has to be watching for that cue from the eyes. And believe it or not, you can learn to get that down with almost no delay, and it looks really natural. I was impressed by that. Another interesting thing, clapping. Clapping is hard. And so... When Paul is assisting with Cookie Monster, doing the right hand for Cookie Monster, a lot of times they'll be on something like uh, one of those good morning kind of shows, a Today Show kind of thing, or maybe a news program, waking up with whatever. You get the idea. And for some odd reason, out of the blue, they have to start clapping, and Cookie Monster's got to start clapping. So David Rudman is doing the head and the left hand of Cookie Monster, and that left hand all of a sudden is just going to start clapping. And as soon as that happens, Paul has to be ready with the right hand not to do a symmetrical movement because symmetrical clapping with two different performers is incredibly hard to do and they generally don't try it. He actually is going to have his hand down low a little bit with sort of an open palm just ready to catch it, almost like catching a ball in his mitt. And... When you do that, it's a particular kind of clapping that looks, I would say, more natural than symmetrical clapping, even for us people. For the puppets, a lot of times works way better because that way you don't need quite as much synchronization 
At least you don't need impossible synchronization between the two performers. So that really does wonders. We also learned some interesting safety things that I wouldn't have thought about, such as how your arm wire is a weapon. And I should have thought about this because I've been hit in the face by one so many times, but if you're assisting by doing the right arm wire and then you just drop it all of a sudden, then that thing could just go flying anywhere without warning and you'll shoot your eye out. So you have to be really careful about that kind of thing. On the other hand, if you're doing a live hand puppet, then you generally want to get your hand out of there ASAP. If you're an assist, I mean, if you're right-handing, then as soon as the puppet comes down, you slide your hand right out. And there's a reason for that that I'm not going to explain because, again, you should go to the workshop and learn this stuff from Paul and from David. So, if you can get up there, I think it's going to be worth it. In spite of all the chaos of trying to get there, I still think it was worth it for me to go. I enjoyed myself, and I learned a lot, and I hope that you get to do the same thing. If you want to know more about that, please go to brooklynpuppetconspiracy.com. Hey, I think it's about time to go home and get something to eat. So, I'll just turn around and... No, wait a second. That's not the way. Or is it? No, it's over... Oh, I mean, it's down the... Uh-oh, dear. Hmm. I think I'd better go this way. Uh-oh, maybe it's... Oh, mister! Can you tell me how to get... How to get to Sesame Street? Sorry, bub. Never heard of it. Oh, well. Thanks anyway. Uh, excuse me, sir. Nope, not today, not today. Don't have time, don't have time. Oh dear, what'll I do now? Hey, can you tell me how to get, how to get to Sesame Street? Sure, it's over the, no, 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 it's back over, uh, I, oh yeah, it's about, uh, six miles, in, uh, oh no, let's see, I, no, it's east, no, no, it's, it's where, ah, uh, oh gee, I forget. Oh, oh dear. Well, thanks, even if you weren't really any help. You're welcome, any time. This is silly. Sesame Street just couldn't disappear, could it? Sunny day, sweeping the clouds away. On my way to where the air is sweet. Can you tell me how to get, how to get to Sesame Street? Look at the sign! What sign? Oh, that sign! Let's see, it says, Ses hey, it says Sesame Street! My very favorite sign of all! And it was there all the time! If you're wondering why I just played a Big Bird song, the first DVD I'm reviewing is I Am Big Bird, The Carol Spinney Story. I've already reviewed this excellent documentary on the podcast before, but that was actually an earlier version of it. That was just the version that they were screening at different film festivals and things, but when I got the DVD just recently, my family and I watched it during a car ride, and while I was up in the front seat for most of the movie, so I really just heard it, didn't actually see the DVD player screen, I remembered exactly which visuals went with what I was hearing. I was happy to know that the film stayed about the same when it went to DVD, but I did notice the absence of one scene that Dave and Chad told me was going to be missing. They cut part of the movie about someone who had actually died on Carol's property a few years ago, and of course the media had a field day at the time, 
Uh, I'm okay with this being cut because it didn't really stick to the main storyline, but I'm surprised that it wasn't one of the DVD extras. What really surprised me was that just about all of the DVD extras were little bits of the film that got cut, which I suppose was, it was nice to see, it was certainly fascinating, but it would have been really cool to get a behind the scenes feature of some sort, some funny interview bloopers, or maybe an audio commentary by Carol and the directors. Still, what you get when you get the DVD is really great and I enjoy everything that's on there. I'm happy to have a copy. I think my one real wish would be that the film had been edited, just edited slightly, so it could have a PG rating, so it was a bit more family friendly, because it's always awkward when children are watching these kinds of things. I think a lot of times the parents don't realize that this stuff isn't aimed at children, like being Elmo, that kind of thing, aimed very much at adults, I think, more so than kids. So it might be good to clean everything up a little bit, uh, but I can see why they didn't do that. I think it might have hurt the story to do that, and if there's one thing that the creators of this film have shown, it's that they know how to focus on the story, and that's good filmmaking. Now, I'm going to play a little song that was on the DVD as a bonus feature, but the interesting part of the bonus feature is what happens before Big Bird starts singing the song, so you have to see that. It's, it's wonderful and hilarious. You have to buy this movie, preferably on a disc with bonus features like this one. I say it's worth it. You can fly, little children. You can fly, you can fly to the sky, little children. To the sky, to the sky. Just close your eyes and dream of things up there Where rainbows float among the clouds And you'll be there Rest your heads, little children Rest your heads, rest your heads In your beds, little children In your beds, in your beds Your day was filled with dreams that float on air so sleep, my little children, go to sleep, my little children, and you'll fly, fly, fly. It's time to talk about Muppets Most Wanted. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Why the heck is JD bothering to review this DVD now when it was released last August? It seems a little late. In fact, when Ryan Dozier was on the show about a year ago, I was asking him what he thought of the extended version of the film, and I intended to watch that shortly thereafter, that interview. Well, I didn't get around to seeing it until just a few weeks ago, and since someone had requested last year that I review the DVD and Blu-ray, I wanted to actually follow through with that request now that I've seen it. So what did I think of it? 
Well, I've always been bothered by how limited the features on the DVD were, especially in comparison to the Blu-ray, because having the DVD should be enough for me to get to watch the film in whichever way I choose, including the extended version. That being said, even the Blu-ray seems a little lacking in good bonus content because, as many have noted before me, there needs to be an audio commentary from the people behind the scenes. Hopefully, there will be good audio commentary on some of the episodes of the new ABC show when just the first three seasons of The Muppets Period get released on DVD. Anyway, the special thing about the Blu-ray is the extended version of the film, which is why I say this is THE way to watch the movie. I was just recently watching some clips from the 2011 film, and I was reminded of two things. First of all, Muppets Most Wanted wasn't trying too hard to jerk my heartstrings in order to get me invested in the characters like 2011 was. It just knew that these were interesting enough characters that we could just run with the interesting part of the plot right away without trying to use tears and crying and sappy emotional nostalgia to get me hooked. Secondly, Most Wanted seems to be lacking in a particular kind of humor that 2011 had, which may be due to the lack of Jason Siegel's influence. What 2011 had was a lot of little jokes that didn't really need to be there, but the movie was happy to go out of its way to include them anyway, and it's little touches like these that can make a movie more special, it can make a good one great. For example, I noted before how Gary and Mary have the reverse of typical gender roles, and they act like it's a totally normal thing for Amy Adams' character to be the one who works on cars and fixes the electricity, while Gary is holding the ladder and doing the sewing. I love clever little touches like that. The problem, of course, with these jokes is that they are, in the end, not necessarily well, necessary. Because of this, they often end up on the cutting room floor before anything else, and that was part of the sequel's problem. It was too long, so they had to cut the jokes that weren't needed. But the extended version keeps a lot of these jokes intact. I don't want to give them away, but I think you'll find that a lot more of the charm of the first, particularly in its comedy style, can be found in the extended version of the sequel. Additionally, re-watching Muppets Most Wanted after many months without seeing it helped me appreciate it in new ways. Maybe it was just how fancy the Blu-ray made the movie look, but I'd forgotten just how visually appealing it is. It has a pretty great look in a number of different scenes, particularly during I'm Number One. It's still ugly in some parts, I mean nothing could fix the hideous chroma key work in the finale. Honestly. The film's ending is its biggest problem, between the hideous chroma key with all the guest stars and cameos on the wall that I just mentioned, and the disappointing lack of a new closing number, perhaps along the lines of, we ruined a sequel, and of course, the utter stupidity of this. When what we really wanted, what we really needed, was you, Kermit. Oh man, that's the worst part of the movie. Except, wait a second, what are all of those celebrities doing in the gulag anyway? Why were they sent there? That makes no flipping sense. If they weren't at all involved in what Kermit did to get out of the gulag, and they weren't all performing in the finale, they shouldn't have to be there. They're innocent people. In fact, even if it did make some sense for them to be locked up, they wouldn't be allowed in with all their clothes and stuff. They're wearing the same outfits they had on earlier. Come on. And then, when the musical number is done, Tina Fey gets cut off by the end titles in that super predictable joke. Okay, Nadia, this is it. You're solo. Okay, is it just me, 
Or does it sound like she ought to be screaming Alvin's name instead of Kermit's? That's an Alvin and the Chipmunks ending. Really. Really. That's a little pathetic. You can do better than that movie. You can have a stronger ending than that. In fact, I suspect that it was the weakness of the ending that left a bad taste in the critics' mouths, which is what led to the lesser reviews that Muppets Most Wanted received than its predecessor. And yet, you should still watch the extended version. It still manages to be an excellent film that takes everything good about the theatrical version and makes it a little better. Baby, stop right there. Let me clear the air. Baby, look into these eyes. Let me apologize. I know what you're thinking of. You think where's the love? Well, baby, the love ain't gone. Is here where it belongs. And I know what you're wearing. Alright, it looks like we've come to the end of another one. I think this was a fun show. I'm rather proud of it. Except that it's gotten really late at night and I'm very tired. So while I do try to keep this a professional podcast with a professional ending every time... Uh, just let me go to bed. 